I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. thinking about this the other day i was i've been seeing a lot of movies this year and the um how many movies is it now oh god it's like 239 i am behind i'm not going to hit my 365 239 is still a lot and i've gone to the movie theater i think i counted it up i i've looked through my list again and put asterisks next to to everything that i went and saw in the theater i think it's like 25 movies i've seen in the theater this year wow um wow and uh Oh, by the way, this is a, a total digression, but I actually finally signed up for that membership card they're always hawking on you at um, AMC. At AMC, I got that. I saved a ton of money with that. You know, the best thing about that that thing is not only do you save money, but the best thing about that card is where you kind of get that like rich, um, like get out of my way, proles kind of like <laughs> Schadenfreude. Like, all the plebs are going to have to stand in line, and there's a separate line for people with that card. Oh, yeah. I still, I still stand in the regular line. Oh, I, I feel their <laughs> eyes first, on me, and I just... First class, like, baby. <laughs> I find it too embarrassing. Oh, I do it. I've gotten into movies so fast, and I feel, I feel the glare, and the weird thing is, I know about that because I had that glare the week before I bought that card, and I'm like, what's stopping me from doing that, too? Because I'm almost like, and it's just like you know the socialist in me flares up. And goes, <laughs> but it's not, the thing is, is it doesn't cost anything, does it? No, it does. It's like fifteen dollars a oh, year. Oh, it does. Oh, okay. And you oh, basically get points that you get a was it like a hundred points, uh, ten points for every dollar you spend. I don't know. There's and a then, bunch of us, so every time we go, we're getting something free. Yeah. So mm-hmm. every mm-hmm. time you you get like I think a ten points, hundred points for a dollar, and then when you hit, now I think it's a hundred points you get for a dollar. Or is it 10 points? Whatever it is. But anyways, you build it up, and then you get money off when you hit a certain certain level. Free popcorns. And yeah, you get like uh, you get upgrades, and you also can use the special line that lets you... You can go up to the front counter and light a cigar with a $100 bill. <laughs> the key to the executive washroom. The only thing right. the card yeah. doesn't really let you do is, if you really want a seat, is throw some other poor schlub out of it. <laughs> You're like, get out of there. This is my seat. And then you snap your fingers in a couple of big... AMC goons come up and and uh, grab them by the arm and drag them out. You know, I kind of like, want to see AMC goons. <laughs> Move along, peasants. This is my chair. <laughs> uh, but yeah, everyone who I see working at AMC at a, a local theater would not be ca- physically capable of throwing someone out of a movie theater, or willing. Because I or, think that willing. you know nowadays it's so hard to get people to pay ten dollars to see a movie that. I don't even think they want to throw out people who are the worst in a movie theater because it's just like, oh, we need their money too. I am dying to ask anybody who works there if on their name tags it says their favorite movie. Yeah, yeah. Some of these people are like 13 years old yeah. and <laughs> their favorite movie will be something like Rescuers Down Under or something like that. Yeah. There are some interesting ones. I can't not look at that tag and there's some really interesting choices. <laughs> and I'm like, and- <laughs> Papillion, you know. Yeah, right. Papillion. It's gummo. Get some really weird fucked up choices for that one. Kids. Kids. (laughs) It's like some 16-year-old kid with this deer hunter on there. You're like, what is going on here? Deliverance. Nymphomaniac Volume 2. Right. (laughs) Deep Throat. (laughs) But yeah, it's it's kind of weird. But anyways, um, I saw a trailer for the new Murder on the Orient Express. Oh, yeah. Is that a Brano joint? Yeah, it, he's it looks, in it. I don't, is he directing yeah, he, it? Yeah, he plays Poirot. I don't know if he directs it, mm-hmm. uh, but he definitely stars as Hercule Poirot, and mm-hmm. he is the lead guy, and he has a magnificent mustache. Yeah. This has been a couple good years for mustaches in movies, usually with Kurt Russell, but <laughs> he has some spectacular <laughs> facial hair recently. Um, it's like, that is a magnificent beard, sir. Um, but... Uh, I'm watching this trailer, and I realize it's like, oh, hey, I want to check this out. Especially now I'm watching a lot more movies, and I've got no excuse not to, because I'll probably get $10 off by the time I see that comes out. And uh, then Johnny Depp's on the screen, and I'm like, I don't know when this happened. When did Johnny Depp become a thing? This is before I found out that he was, you know, a wife beater or whatever. Right. Um, 
that he became this person that made me less likely to see a movie. And I, was it Pirates 3? Yeah. Or I don't know what it was, but there was this time where I'm like, oh, hey, neat, Johnny Depp. And now it's just like, oh, Johnny Depp. And it had the same emotional reaction to me that I have when it goes, and a film by, you know, legendary filmmaker M. Night Shyamalan appears. <laughs> and there's just deflation. Fight. You're just like, yeah. yeah. Where there was a point where, like, interest, interest. And I'm like, Never mind. <laughs> I don't know when this happened. I don't know. It's like everything post Pirates 1 or maybe even go back a little further, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, he starts playing these cartoon characters. Okay. So, I have a theory about this. I've done a lot of thinking about this problem. Oh, wow. And um, This is spontaneous, folks. We didn't script this beforehand. Right. So, you know, Bill Murray played Hunter Thompson in Where the Buffalo mm-hmm. Roam. And there's a famous thing where Bill Murray said... When he found out Depp was going to be playing Hunter S. Thompson, he called him up and said, play him however you want, have fun doing it, but whatever you do, don't do him, because you won't be able to stop. Now, Johnny Depp has famously gone on record saying that Jack Sparrow is a mix of Keith Richards and Pepe Le Pew, and while that sounds good, it's clearly he's still playing Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when you watch Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, I saw the thing like four or five times in the theater, um... There's two halves to it, just like in the book. And the first half is great fun. And the second half is dark. Yeah, right? it it's gets, about, gets worse and worse and harder to get through. It's about the wave rolling back. Yeah. And it's, it is harder to get through. You feel dirty and so on. I think for a few years there, around Pirates, <laughs> that's the first half of Fear and Loathing. And we're all having fun along with him. Oh. And now... It's the th- we're at the end of that second half, and that wave has rolled way back. And you just feel like you need a shower. Yeah, and none of us are interested in seeing him play like saggy-skinned versions of Hunter S. Thompson in all these other movies that he doesn't belong in. Yeah, <clears throat> he was. Uh, did either of you see Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them? I did, I did not. Uh, so he has a he has a role that's in there, but it's 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 a small role that's in there. But it's 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 kind of inex- inexplicable. I guess you're sort of spoiling by showing his character, but he's he's on IMDb. It's not spoiling it. It's that, been out uh, for one two of the main years. characters is revealed to be secretly Johnny Depp. Yeah, right. Um, and I kind of feel the same thing about this as I felt like him in Black Mass, which was a movie that I actually did go to the theater to see because uh, I was interested in how, in, in him doing it. Um, you have a sense of the only thing that you would be interested in Johnny Depp right now is sort of the downfall of Johnny Depp. And so when he gets real dark and dirty, that's all. That's basically all he can do that's interesting right now is play depraved characters. Is, is play, this like cinematic rubbernecking? Is that what we're talking I, about? Like, yes, I think so. Cinematic rubbernecking. Yeah, I it. think exactly right. And even in Black Mass, I was like, I was like, okay, well, he plays this kind of psychopathic character that I think is scary. I mean, I think he did a good job. Um, but it wasn't more than just sort of a scary character, and I wish that he'd been the heavy for another another crime boss character who was more interesting. Like that was the sort of thing. Beyond that, I I won't go back and watch Black Mass again. I didn't I didn't enjoy it. it was like was like a. Uh, you know, watching Green Room or something, where it was a great movie, but by the end, I'm just like, oh god, I hate this. Or it's it's, hate a, it. it's an experience that you only really want to have once, even if you really appreciated it. Yeah, and you you can't yeah. even say you enjoyed the movie, but it's like I really, it's a great movie. It's like Requiem for a Dream. I was just yeah. gonna say that's the quintessential film that you're talking. I about. I saw that once, like. 15 years ago. Who sees that more than once? Who owns that movie on DVD? <laughs> Aronofsky doesn't own that film. <laughs> That's just like, it just seems like it's like, okay, I got it. I don't need to see that again. Because all it, it's just, it, oh. But yeah. I bet Jared Leto like, plays it on his tour bus. Yeah, he's a weird dude, though. <laughs> he falls asleep to it every night. Oh, do you think he like goes on a date and brings somebody home and they want to watch Requiem for a Dream? <laughs> There's a lot of first dates that never lead to second dates. <laughs> Jared. Well, yeah. he was in the new Blade Runner movie. As... And he was good. Yeah, he was good. Although, I, I was sad when... Uh, uh, for I mean, it, it's a cascade of sadness because Denis Villeneuve said that his original choice for that character, Neander Wallace, was David Bowie. Right. But of course, mm. he was either sick or in exile or already dead by the point where they were time when they were casting. And I was like... Yeah, the one there was a few weaknesses of that movie, which I, we can talk more about. I don't know if Todd's seen it. I have not seen it. Yeah, yet. You haven't seen it. Um, it was a beautiful movie. It was amazing, and it was a sequel that does everything you want. A lot like Mad Max Fury Road in that respect, mm-hmm. where it's a 
uh, you're doing it so many years later, and so there have been lots of other movies that have aped it, and it's that it's had an effect on filmmakers so much that it would be really hard to go back and not parody it or not make like a remix movie, kind of the way Force Awakens was, right? Um, the weakness there are a few, I think, sort of subtle narrative weaknesses in the plot weaknesses that you they could have fixed in some way. Um, However, uh, it was beautiful. It's, it touched me in ways that I could not have expected to. And I went back and I saw it again in the theater. And I was just like, I, I, we, you could not have expected a better uh, follow-up to something that if you were listening to me on the podcast two years ago, you'd have said... We've been deriding this for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I would have said this This only is going to cheapen the first one, which, yeah. you know, there's been plenty of sequels that have been like, God damn it, why does that, you know, Blues Brothers 2000. Yeah. That, the fact that it exists sucks, and yeah. it makes you be like, oh, someone might have seen Blues Brothers 2000 for the first time and never see the first movie. They that, think that's the original. Yeah, then that sucks. Um, I, th- I think it's uh, we can talk about it a bit without spoiling it both for Todd or the audience. But yeah. I think what this movie does really well is that it Jared Leto he's the best. Oh, no. he's not. He's good at it. He's, he's um, all right. But I think that they don't they don't misuse what Blade Runner is. Is that it, in a lot of ways it is very much a spiritual successor to the original, which is it. Blade Runner is not a movie for everybody. It's not an action film. It's not about just Harrison Ford shooting guns at robots. It's a movie that is long and has amazing visuals and allows you to take in those visuals very slowly. And that's something that this movie does, too. It's not an action movie. It's not a crowd-pleasing movie. That people who go in there wanting the experience with Harrison Ford that they got in Force Awakens should realize that, you know, Blade Runner is not Star Wars, and it shouldn't be Star Wars. And that it's a movie that's often long and morose and sad, and that a lot of stuff isn't explicitly said, that a lot of it is sort of absorbed. And it's definitely from the camp of Blade Runner of, let's not have the voiceover that explains way too much with a bored-sounding Harrison Ford. <laughs> and it's it's a beautiful movie, both visually, and I think that it also really has a lot to say about these characters and the idea of what it is to be human. And the best thing it doesn't do is make it all about the is Deckard an android thing. Yeah. They could have done that whole, is he, is he not a replicant? They, they basically have a single line that references it and they just march over it and say, this is yeah. not about that. The, the quest- character who's, who's delivering it doesn't let on in terms of whether or not he is or isn't. And the character who's delivering it could be bullshitting. Yeah, there's no there, the the this movie does not take a position one way or another very explicitly. It understands yeah. that the question is what's important, not the answer. That the answer yeah. would almost ruin the question, and uh, it also does something that I absolutely love. Blade Runner twenty forty nine does not try to hammer in modern history technology into this timeline. Nope, it is the future of a nineteen eighty two vision of the future. So you will have big boxy uh, computer monitors. I think there's a weird little analog joystick on one of yeah, them. Yeah. It's a forward projection of that movie. So you get to see Ryan Gosling use an even more advanced microfiche machine. Right. And you get to see, like, there's a Pan Am building in the background of one shot. Yeah. So st- this is not our future. It's that future. And that little, the touches like that, but never feel overwhelmingly. It isn't like. Like the with the special editions of Star Wars screaming to get noticed. And there's a lot of world building that kind of gets done there because you're given the freedom to just kind of absorb it. Yeah. And process it and digest it. There's there's it is interesting that uh with the sort of post Star Wars Force Awakens idea about needing the scale of a sort of a re, re reboot or a recharge of a classic movie, the scale of this movie is larger. To be sure, it's larger. And one of the things about the original Blade Runner that was interesting, as opposed to lots of other big sci-fi movies at the time, is that it decided to contain the scope of its story to a very, very small place in a much larger universe. So you never went off-world, right? We only heard that Roy Batty came from off-world colonies, and he'd been to lots of different places, but you don't see it. You just see him here in this part right. of the, these few buildings with Deckard. Similar similar to this one is you see slightly more of California, basically, yeah. right? You see slightly more of that part of the of the United States of America in and around the city. You get a little bit higher and a little bit further away. But you don't you never go off world, you're never on another planet, you're never on an intergalactic spaceship, you know. Yeah, this is a series that there are it's, characters who explicitly have gotten into wars in space 
and we don't go there. Right. Because that's not what it's about. So I, I feel that it was it's great. I always, I'll say forever that Empire Strikes Back is like the perfect sequel because it expands upon the scope, uh, increases the characters and the danger and the, te- the drama between them. And it does, it, Blade Runner 2049 does all of these and with very few exceptions doesn't do it cheaply. It earns what it earns the drama that it makes. There aren't too many glaring plot holes that are there. And this, the sort of thematic elements, uh, set design elements, music elements, the ones that where it does have a direct callback, it's not so obvious as to rub it in your face. It just makes it a harmonious continuation of the first one. And I would be okay. It's fine. I mean, they're the the you know the black the I think don't think they're going to be the black ever with this movie, but probably good if they just never make another one. Yeah, just I, don't make another one. I think we're in a place now where something spectacular has happened. As a character says in this movie, we've witnessed a miracle, <laughs> um, and we just kind oh of oh my god, Dave Bautista, Dave Bautista is of all the pro wrestlers whose careers have started you know out in the WWE, uh, he's been in more interesting things than anybody, um, but. The the thing with this movie, I think it wouldn't we're... have been as good if that character, that Sapper Morton, was uh, John Cena. It definitely wouldn't have been as. Good. <laughs> it would have been weird. <laughs> but I think we're in a place kind of like post James Cameron's Aliens, where something implausible happened. This great standalone movie had a great sequel, and now we can just kind of stop. We we can feel the restraint here and go. Blade Runner three is going to be terrible. Yeah, that we we got lucky. This is Russian roulette. That there are fewer chambers every time you pull that trigger, and uh, there's almost always a bullet in number three. There's usually a bullet in number two, and we got to get comfortable. We got you know just go. We were lucky here. The same thing that had to happen with Mad Max is that everything about Mad Max Fury Road should have sucked. That it's a movie that took thirty years to make. It was in development hell, which usually means eventually sucks. It's a one where the the return of a creator who created something and hasn't done this thing for thirty years. It's, in so many ways, should never have been as good as it was. So, I'm really excited to see it. The problem is, the problem is it's like three hours long, and I have to be able to find three hours yeah. to go. Yeah. But I would be willing, and here's, here's what would make me willing to not pick my kids up from school or to show up late for work to go see <laughs> the new Blade Runner flick, is, you know how Pixar always has those great short films before their features? Mm-hmm. If there were a short film included of Leon and his pet tortoise no oh, yes huh? <laughs> walking through the desert right and then maybe this is the thing that kicks off that whole, that whole first film wait, so leon wait. actually knew what a tortoise was he oh. did damn well oh. there's layers some layers there oh man oh my god have, have, i don't It'll know if be cutesy you know and have a fun little twist to the ending and then it gets yeah. stuck on its back there you go yeah i don't know if i've i've told this story on the show before but i learned this a while ago that the San Francisco, San Francisco in like 2003 had a mayor's race. And there was a humor <laughs> magazine that interviewed the candidates for mayor. And what they really did was give them the Voight Kampf test. <laughs> <laughs> and they asked them the questions, and then they have a transcript of them answering it. Only one person out of like nine people running recognized that it was from Blade Runner. Was that like Jello Biafra or something? <laughs> no, I forget who it was. I think it was Republican. It was really weird. But yeah, he was, he was like, wait, is this for Blade Runner? <laughs> He's like, what's a tortoise? <laughs> <laughs> Matt, there was, I, I believe Matt Gonzalez, who is the, the Green Party candidate, had my favorite interaction. Where he was just like, wait, is this a psychological thing? He was like, he didn't understand what was going on. And they said, they give you a calfskin wallet for that. He's like, I don't know what that is. You know what a cow is, Matt? <laughs> and I was like, that, that was my favorite little bit there, because that felt like it was from Blade Runner. Um, but yeah, uh, they did the whole sort of thing, and people were like, I, like they seemed like horrified by the whole thing with the, uh, the tortoise. They're like, I don't know. <laughs> they were just, and they, just, they determined after all of this that um, two-thirds of them were replicants. Yes. <laughs> I mean, clearly, at this point, do any of us want a public official, of, like even like in charge of waterworks or anything like that, <laughs> who doesn't recognize something from Blade Runner? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know how to answer that question. Yeah, I don't know. What's a tortoise? What's... <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, a uh, strong recommend from at least this half of Radio I, versus the Martians. I uh, think we've kind of eaten crow over this. Yeah. I really do because, and this is a place where I'm happy to eat crow. I really do. I. 
I never really want something to be terrible. But it wouldn't... Well, you have to concede this, though. Ridley Scott was going to direct this initially. Oh, thank God Had he, he didn't. Had he directed this, I think it would have been far worse. Even if the script would have remained more or less, more or less the same, I feel like while they were shooting it, Ridley Scott would have started to mess around with it in ways that, unlike... In the original Blade Runner, the ways that they messed around with David Webb Peoples and Hampton Fanchon's original script ended up being something more than the sum of its parts. It would have made this far, far, far less, and he would have wanted to retreat into like, well, let's see how this was made, and let's follow the backstory of this thing, and let's ruin the chronology of the whole, you know. Well, a lot of it is that a lot of times, a lot of, a lot of original creators, and I count George Lucas in this too, as I think that there's something where they don't always understand what it is that people love about the thing that they created because they love a different thing about it and they inha- they bring up more of the stuff that they want to do and it isn't really what the the audience wants and i think that we saw that with Ridley Scott and Prometheus well they're not the same person at all yeah. that they were when they made those and in so many ways and i think that goes back to what we were talking about with Schwarzenegger if we're expecting him to be able to do the same things that he did in the era that we all love I don't know if that's a fair expectation. That's like expecting Ridley Scott to go back to the Alien universe and nail it. Yeah, it's so weird because then I look at somebody like you know George Miller. Again, um, I, I I have continually called Fury Road like a unicorn of a movie that it had everything against it that would just go okay. This is going to be a a clusterfuck. This is not going to be great. And I'm like, how is this good? Because he had that same sort of character arc, I guess you could say, that he spent how many years doing things like Babe Pig in the City and Happy Feet and all the stuff for his kids. But then when it came time for him to go back and have a bunch of crazy people in a car made out of spikes killing each other with exploding Q-tips, it was like amazing. (laughs) And a lot of people can't do that. Um, And I guess a lot of it too, and this is the part where I think we nerds are culpable in it, is that we have sort of fostered a kind of attitude where we want everything explained and answered. And I don't really want an answer for where the aliens came from in the movie Aliens. That was the whole point, is I know that they were on an alien ship, and whoever they were, these people, they were murdered by these things. And that's a warning signal for people wanting to play around with that egg. And I like the mystery of not knowing what this was or where it came from. And that was my biggest beef with Alien Covenant, because I don't want that answer. I just want, I want a question that's sort of weird and goes back into the mists of time that just is there to set up the foundations for a horror movie and people running around being killed by monsters. You know, you you mentioned at the beginning of this, you're talking about, well, Alien and Aliens, and we could have just had not any more Aliens movies after that, is I will say this about Fincher's Alien 3 and then Juno's Alien 4, is that it was interesting that at least to begin with, for those first initial four, was that it was basically the same story retold through the mind of a different filmmaker, which, I, uh, you know, as problematic as three and four actually were, I think there are still p- pieces of those that make it a little more interesting, even if they overuse the Ridley the Ridley character, um, like um, Ripley character, not the Ridley character. I, I still think there's something that's valuable in them that is totally absent from Prometheus and from Alien Covenant. Like... And Alien versus Predator, right? Like, yeah. there's there's still something about recasting sp- functionally the same story. There are monsters. They're out to kill you. Watch these heroes be sort of whittled down to the smartest and best ones and then have them defeat the monsters in the end. Like, still a good formula. Um, I don't know if it could have survived a fifth and a sixth in that same mode. No, I think you have to be willing to say goodbye to Ellen Ripley. And I think that... As awesome as Sigourney Weaver is, and I know that you and I have talked about this before, that the real strength of Sigourney Weaver is she has an ability to ground fantastical things and make it feel real that even if a movie's a comedy, she always acts as if she's in a drama and these crazy things are actually happening to her. And she really gives you a sense of stakes, even in something like Galaxy. Finding Dory. Finding Dory. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yes, exactly. Uh, Galaxy Quest, I was going to say, is that Galaxy Quest is a comedy, yet it still feels like the stakes are much more real because the actors believe it. And I think Sigourney Weaver's a big part of it, where she's like yelling about the stupidity of this job she has to do on this ship. And he's like, but this is the only job I have, so I'm doing it. And it's just like, you can see that moment of her just going like, I'm grappling with my sanity right now, so just leave me the fuck alone. Um, I think that's the thing that she really brings. And I also think that 
90% of the reasons I get angry at Alien 3 were of the what it did to the end of Aliens. Especially yeah. to Newt. Yeah, yeah. And to these other characters, Bishop, and to... Uh, what was the name of the... Uh, J- uh, Michael, Michael Bean character? Michael Bean character. Yeah. I Hicks. mean, because it just, is that yeah. we had these movies where we finally get a happy ending for, for Ripley, that... Uh, she lo- she found that she lost a daughter and she sort of gained a new daughter that she's finally going home that people believe her that she can go and live a normal life now and it's a good way to sort of walk away from that but we just keep fucking with her life and it just it feels cruel after a while and it also kind of detracts more and more from her role as a regular person it's kind of the John McClane problem yeah where you know, John McClane asks in the second movie, how many times can the same shit happen to the same person? Well, twice. After that, <laughs> it gets dumb. And because then you're not just a regular person who wanders into an extraordinary situation. Then twice. that's your... Yeah, that's your job. Because you... Twice Because of a brother. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... It becomes crazy. Because then you're just an action hero. And I really think you could have done Alien 3 without Ripley and just make it about the evils of the uh, the Whalen yutani Corporation fucking with a private prison and saying, eh, what happens if we just chuck an egg in there and see what happens? And it plays with the same themes. And there's a lot of great actors in Alien 3. And I'm pretty sure, it went, I don't know what could have happened if they hadn't fucked with Fincher the whole time. Yeah. And really made this kind of a series for auteurs and say, hey, we're going to give this series to somebody to make a story about this monster and let them do their own version of it. It's like Ridley Scott did it, then James Cameron did it, and it could be a place for an up-and-coming director to really show what they could do. Isn't it interesting to to note that Fincher never went back and did a sci-fi movie? I think he got burned, man. I, yeah. Maybe that's the whole thing. Maybe he just didn't want to touch this shit again. I mean, uh, what he? I think he found out that he had his place at being, at his words, being a guy who can make a movie about people who do terrible things to each other in basements. So that's clearly his bread and butter for films. But still, like he's he's very grounded as a filmmaker. And uh, although Alien as a franchise for sci-fi is a pretty grounded franchise, right? See, I'm going to argue that. It's not really a sci-fi franchise, and mm. that Alien Three specifically is not a sci-fi film. I think. Yeah. It's, I think what's interesting about the Alien films until you get to four, and I ignore four, um, is that they're each quite a bit different genre. The first one, right? If you take the space out of it, it's a slasher flick. Yep. Even with the female protagonist and so on, it's totally a slasher flick. Right. The second one is all-out action flick. Right. Yep. And and then the third one. What is that? Well, it's a little harder to define because of its problems, but at its heart, it's a thriller. Yeah. And he has continued to make thrillers. True. True. That's true. You're right. And then four is un- kind and of uncategorizable. It's like, it's like <laughs> yeah. City of Lost Children if you drop in and like you were retarded. Yes. <laughs> right. City of Retarded Children is oh. that movie, unfortunately. That's a, that's a, I need to go back. I think Brad Dourif's in that movie. He which, is. Yeah, he um, is. And somehow it still fails. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of good people in Alien. In Is it Resurrection? Alien Resurrection. Yeah, that movie's not good. With a question mark, I yeah. believe. <laughs> Resurrection? Wait, I mean, there's some nice little <laughs> creepy moments. Michael Winthrop make... is in there, right? Wincott is in there. And so is Dan Hedaya. Yeah, yes. Uh, that was a friend of <laughs> yeah. mine uh, when we if saw only the... John Polito would make the triumvirate there. <laughs> Wincott, Hedaya, and Polito. <laughs> we... Oh man! <laughs> like the the Cohen... red electroids. Oh, then we got to make the Cohen brothers to direct an aliens movie. Yeah. Oh my god! That'd yeah. be the comedy one. Oh man! Yeah, there's some things you can do with it. I mean, they they get some genuinely like off-putting, creepy moments, like that fleshy alien that gets sucked through that hole in oh, the yeah. wall. <laughs> but I don't know. The whole movie just feels off. It doesn't really feel like what you what you want. Because <laughs> I, I think they should have just stopped. Because I think that once you hit that point where you're like, okay, we're, we've kind of... We should have stopped a movie ago. We're not going to fix it by making more movies, which is the Highlander problem. Well, one of the things that I noticed um, in the theater, the Alien 4, is at the end... I think it was at the end. In the credits. Maybe it was at the beginning. There's like <laughs> 27 producers... Oh, on that thing. That's a good sign of quality. Right. It's like, holy shit. Lots, I, lots of cooks. Yeah, lots of cooks. So that movie for... I mean, the director is a fantastic director. Yeah. But man, you're pretty powerless to make something decent when there's that many cooks. Yeah. 
There really isn't a way to, to win then. I mean, and this is, isn't this ultimately the fate of, well, we should not be old men shaking our cane too much at like long running franchises, but it's the police academy thing is that it's just, it, it eventually fizzles out. It's very, very hard for you to sort of sustain that magic, that purple in a, in a movie for it to keep going without it becoming uh, overwrought. And that's the real, that is the real thing that's inexplicable to me about what Ridley Scott's doing doing an- yet another alien movie is like when do you just say listen i can't do what i what i wanted to do with this it's not working when- enough is enough how many movies after which how many how many movies do you have to say okay it's not going to work they'll throw money at ridley scott forever well right? until it stops making money and it, it turns turns into something like that guy Ritchie king arthur movie that's when it mm. dies is that was supposed to be a franchise starter too but yeah, that's everyone wants a franchise. Everyone wants to have a ten movie deal, and I wonder if that what was it? Is it a is it a Hemsworth that stars in that, or is it the guy from uh, Sons of Anarchy who is playing King Arthur? Give me his, give me his non-union Mexican equivalent. Okay, Charlie Hunnam. Sure. Yeah. Charlie Hunnam. Yeah. So I mean, he probably got signed on for like five movies. But I think the thing that, that a lot of these that movies... guy's that guy's just not very good. Yeah, I don't, I don't. He seems like a decent actor, just he doesn't gel. I don't get it. I can't. It's kind of strange. There's different versions of actors that never quite get it. That one thing that sort of puts them over the top into into stardom. And there's kind of two categories. There's I let's say the Charlie Hunnam category, and then there's the Idris Elba category. Yeah, where Idris Elba really deserves to go over that hill, and he really has it. And he's always been amazing in these side character roles, like on The Wire or even on The Office or a lot of these things. He's always great. And I don't see why he's not a star, but he ends up starring in things that are just kind of mediocre and bad, like the Dark Tower movie, where if that movie had been great, that could have been his leading man moment. Then there's Charlie Hunnam, who's just kind of, he's a a kind of plainly attractive guy who I really don't understand why he's famous other than he looks good on a poster. Because Sons of Anarchy was a very high-rated show. It did very well. If you look at things that he was in prior to that, things like Undeclared and, mm. and so on, he played drastically different roles and is certainly capable of, of doing more than that same character he does over and over again now. He's a capable actor. I just saw the movie that it was last year. It was The Lost City of Z. And it's a somewhat right. half-biographical story about a British sort of a soldier who becomes a wants to find the mythical city of lost city in South America yeah sort of before before there was a time when we actually understood about the Aztec and you know Aztec Empire and how long their civilization went along and so it's kind of a jungle exploration movie that he follows through basically throwing his entire life away um, trying to get there and I was like well this showed something that was things that were interesting like I liked it he as an actor, still felt trapped in this sort of range, in this box. Um, And I never felt like I wasn't sort of watching him and that there wasn't places where he felt totally out of sync with the movie. Right. And therein lies, I think, is the the issue, is that he's still... He's he's not able to subsume himself underneath it. He can't be a Gary Oldman, so to speak. Is this like the early career Brad Pitt problem? Where Brad Pitt, with, say, 12 monkeys... He just needs a Terry Gilliam and... Yeah, I just need to do something fucking crazy. He needs somebody to have that trust in him, perhaps. I don't know if he has that talent or that ability, necessarily, but certainly right now, people are hiring him to do... Whatever you did on Sons of Anarchy, that's what we're hiring you for. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, even Pacific Rim, he sort of still felt, as the lead, he still felt like, so it was like, okay, well, you're overshadowed by the fact that it's a giant robot speeding up monsters movie. But yeah, and Which, even, okay. even then, he feels less interesting than every other character in the movie. True. And that's always kind of that, we want that sort of stalwart, looks good on a poster character, and then everyone else gets to be interesting. I mean, literally everyone else has a better kind of character arc where it feels like he could be replaced with someone else and I wouldn't feel... The... Like John Boyega. Yeah. John Boyega would actually <laughs> would have been better in that role. <laughs> he's starring in the he's, second yeah, one. Yeah, he's in the next yeah. movie. Yeah. I, I like John Boyega. I want to see more of him in that. Speaking of John Boyega, uh, I guess we've got the we got the Star Wars expert, expert in the room. It's Todd, who've seen Star Wars probably more... Hours of Star Wars. At least five times. At least, yes, at least. 80% of it is Battle for Endor. Putting a lot of time in on that movie. I want to ask you this. Porgs, yay or nay? Yay or nay? 
I can't say. I can't. There's something that rubs me the wrong way about the Porgs, but I can't determine if it's the Porgs or the fact that so many people are batshit about the Porgs. I mean, I don't care about the. I don't care about the fan reaction. I think this is one thing that Mike and I harp on all the time. To- all the time, which is that you should like or dislike something completely irrespective of how social media blows up in response to you know overstudied trailers or whatnot. Um, so just because people think that Blade Runner is 2049 is too long and boring and whatever, and they're, they're saying this meme over and over again, doesn't mean that you shouldn't go into the theater right. with an open mind or whatever. Yeah. I feel like the, the, the obvious connection you could draw with the poor would be like, well, there were Ewoks, they were cute. They, 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 weren't, well, they weren't quite a world of Wookiees like they probably should have had, but they were, you know, they worked. I think we all have, we all have positive nostalgic feelings towards Ewoks. Um, the Porgs seem like they're turned up to 11. Right, cuteness with the big eyes turned up to eleven. I think I have to see the porg finally before <laughs> bring me the porg. Because that's the thing with Star Wars is that the Star Wars um, merchandise thing starts months before the Star Wars movie comes out. Yeah. So the part of it that we find the most objectionable, which is they created a toy, is the only part of the porg that exists right now. Yeah. It's the only. I mean, it's just the merchandise. I mean, there's porgs everywhere in the toy aisle. Where we have They're very marketable, for sure. Yeah. They really are, and you can see why they would make a bunch of toys out of them. But and they spoil nothing. Yeah. Hmm. But they're not a character in a movie yet that anyone yeah. has seen, so we don't know. They could be, like, the Minions, which would be the worst. Right. Or they could be, like, you know, Jawas, which would be kind of fun. A little mischievous little things. And ultimately, where the Porks came from, maybe you guys know this, but on Skellig Michael, where they, you know, filmed the end of, of Force Awakens, there's a big Puffin population. <laughs> really? That's true. Really? Yeah. And and I don't know if you guys know this Friend about Friend of puffins. the show, Sam Mulvey, probably wants to go there on vacation. Puffins, when they eat, are unable to fly properly because their wings are too short, so they skip on the water. They're ridiculous animals, but this they're all over the place. like bullshit. It's totally true. They're all over the place there. It's totally the type of place um, that porgs... Puffins <laughs> hang out. So, they have a problem of, well, shit, are we going to sit there and pay some guys in India to get every single puffin out of every single shot forever. Or maybe we could add some life to this place by turning them into something Star Warsy. So that's where the problem that's a problem they were solving. Well, and is that is that actually the genesis of the is. creation of the character that they some the CG over the puffins? And they're not just CG, they actually made practical as well because they made a replica of Skellig Michael at Pinewood. Hmm. Um and so they have practical porgs that they use as well. <laughs> <laughs> practical porgs it's not a sex thing yet so, yeah. <laughs> so, <Give it> time. <laughs> so yeah it's solving a problem for them and i think they realize wow this is something that costs us nothing to market because we're not blowing you know they're not going to find out about the origin of snoke by this fucking porg <laughs> right <laughs> hopefully but the question is is this a jar jar type of thing yeah who can tell because right now yeah. i mean really who can tell I don't. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not like just you know fundamentally opposed to it at all. I think that's. I think that Star Wars is best when it's not uber cute. I agree. I suppose, but cuteness has always been a part of Star Wars. Yeah. I mean, R two D two is cute. BB eight is cute. But they're also useful, which is the thing that Jar Jar wasn't. That you don't know why they keep Jar Jar around. That it would make total sense for them to just drop him off somewhere and just say, "Good luck on Coruscant. We have to go fight bad guys." That's like saying Jerry Lewis isn't useful. <laughs> I don't know. Well, he's not anymore. <laughs> I, all I'll say is that I, I would, I think that it would be a bad move for them to make a poor Jedi. That's all I'm going to say. Small light, li- small lightsaber. But how do you feel lips. about Porg, the animated series? <laughs> <laughs> My little Porgy. Oh, so many is magic. I'm still stuck on the Jerry Lewis thing. I just keep thinking this Jar Jar Binks version of the is day he not? Pl- uh, What? Is he not Jerry Lewis? Yeah, he is. Without the French fan base. Yeah. Um, are you sure? Just, I'm trying to imagine this Jar Jar Binks version of the day the clown cried. <laughs> a noble attempt, but ultimately a failure. Oh, that's his, keep that's that his Nazi. Yeah, that, was, that was the, uh, that was the, oh God. I, we may get that released in the, I've heard that it's a 10 year thing after he dies. Uh, it's going to be uh, packaged with Song of the South. If oh, I oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's Movies best forgotten. The Burned Bridges uh, <laughs> Collector's Edition. 
Oh, Song of the South. Jesus Christ. Introduced by Bo Bridges. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, but yeah, I, I think, I think, what was his name? Harry Shearer has actually seen. Yeah. Uh, by the way, this is a Holocaust clown movie that was made in 1971. A very ill-conceived Holocaust clown movie. So this was, mind you, this was before Jacob the Liar and Life is Beautiful. Yeah. Which right. are two movies that essentially did the same, exactly. more or less the same plot. And uh, but you you essentially have a, a a movie that was so bad that they never released it, and that Jerry Lewis has done everything in his power to keep it from being released. And I don't know if this is just apocryphal, uh, if this is just a legend that's built up around this movie. But it sounded like it may be possible that he doesn't want it released until ten years after he's died. Yeah. And that the people who have seen it at small gatherings, I know Harry Shearer from The Simpsons, yeah, uh, has seen it and says it's far worse than you could ever possibly imagine. That whatever you think it is, it's worse. And that's a guy with a cucumber in his pants. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for those at home. So it's gonna. It's I'm I'm interested. I know that's an ongoing joke on the Red Letter Media stuff. Mm, yeah, the, the set they have for. Uh, not best of the worst, but for a half in the bag. Lightning fast VCR repair shop. Yeah, there's a bunch a of junk. There's a, there's a <laughs> copy of a VHS tape that says The Day the Clown Cried on their counter. <laughs> it's little things like that that I think are kind of neat. But I don't know. Uh, it's it, be- You know what? It's better if it's vaporware. We learned this, we learned this with Duke Nukem forever. Which was, and I don't know if either of you were ever PC, PC gamer players, but there was a point in time when, like, after Doom, when Duke Nukem was the hot shit, and... Because Duke Nukem made this interesting interactive world, and he's kind of a crazy character, kind of a Sonic the Hedgehog for the PC, if you will, um, where they were like, oh, Forever is going to be great, and it just, if there was a development hell for video games, it was in it. Like, it just got scrapped over and over again, and it took 15 years, I think, for it to eventually get passed along between studios. The original studio went defunct. Um, And then what came out after was like, okay, it's Duke Nukem, and it's goofy and silly, but... Uh, the entire medium has moved on past that point, and it just felt, when you played it, it just sort of felt like, uh, this is not great, and maybe in 1997, it would have been like, this is amazing, but in 2013 or 12 or whenever it was, you were just like, this is tired, and I don't want to finish it. Um, that's the thing that I sort of worry about. Some things are better as vaporware. Some things are better as just being a legend. The legend. That never comes to be realized, and that just always sort of in- exists in fragments, you know? That I think what people really want is they want a clip. I think they, they should have probably shown clips during one of his telethons. Would have probably been the way to roll that out. So they do without his permission. <laughs> they do have there is existing like twenty minutes from a French documentary film that came on the set, and they 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 filmed either some of his rehearsals or some of the stuff that was being shot. So there is pieces of it. You can find it online and watch some of it, but not, of course, not the whole movie and not the whole thing in context. Um, so you can kind of see what it is. It's a, it's a one-man show with Jerry Jerry Lewis. Um, I was just going to say Jerry Lee Lewis. It's not. That movie does similar, not star Jerry fellow. Lee Lewis. <laughs> it's basically a one-man show, a one-man stage play, but it's filmed is what mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. You can you can read the synopsis of it as it's leaked out over the years on Wikipedia. It's you're just like, why did anyone think this was a good idea? Is it the, the question that just keeps coming back? Why? But the legend persists, you know, regardless. Even before he died, for instance, um, the Schumacher's Eight Millimeter with Nicolas Cage. I've heard that that actually was going to be a movie about <laughs> Cage finding. <laughs> He's just so disturbed. <laughs> Can't watch. Oh, Nicolas Cage. Does Has anyone ever disturbed in such a wonderful way as Nicolas Cage? No. <laughs> the, the bees. Oh, the bees. The bees. But I think that's a certain thing that we can sort of respect, even when it's bad, is that certain actors have this ability to just shed their dignity. <laughs> and it, it can be kind of great, but then sometimes it gets really tiring. I call it kind of the... Uh, the Will Ferrell, Jim Carrey problem. Um, and we sort of talked about that before, like the idea that, you know, there's this thing that you can do, but that's not what people want to give you money to do. So you keep doing that little tight box, Charlie Hunnam problem, I guess we can call it now, where I, I guess Melissa McCarthy's in this box. Too, you might where, call it the Hunnam conundrum. Yeah. <laughs> no, where there's it's terrible. Yeah. There's <laughs> like, where you have this actor who's, who's actually very fairly versatile and they're very good at moving outside of it, but nobody ever wants them to do it. And you get something like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind mm-hmm. and 
Like with uh, Melissa McCarthy, everyone was like, the whole joke is, ha, ah, she's fat and she falls down. But then you have something like Spy, where there's a lot of verbal interplay, and I'm like, she's actually really good at that stuff when you let her do it. Mm-hmm. And oh, I thought Jim Carrey's problem is just that he was like a bipolar and so notoriously difficult to work with that he eventually, because his movies weren't huge box office successes anymore, people just didn't want to cast him. Like, as he just got more and more erratic, even though, like, some of the stuff that I think have been, have challenged him, like, like, not Truman Show, uh, Majestic, which was a middling, a middling sort of Darabont movie, I still think it's pretty bold. I liked it. I like seeing that. I like seeing it even if it's a failure, you know. Um, and and Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind, I think, was the sweet spot. I think that's probably as good as you could expect for Jim Carrey, I think. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. He was in The Bad Batch. He had a non-speaking role in... What is The Bad the, Batch? The Bad see. Batch. It's the Keanu movie. You didn't watch the, this for the Keanu panel? I did not. Uh, it came out in 2000, late 2015, and I think it was mostly in 2016. It's a post-apocalyptic story about a girl who is like it's basically like escape from new york but instead of the prison being the island of manhattan it's basically like the entire southwest is a desert that's gone crazy and keanu reeves is the uh wealthy guy who controls basically everything and jason momoa is sort of his counterpart who's the barbarian warlord and jim carrey plays a mute guy homeless guy who walks around with a shopping cart in the middle of the desert helping people Wow. That sounds like a good role for him. But <laughs> yeah. For me, I, I feel like Carrie has been unable to... It's all been downhill. He hasn't been able to eclipse his performance in Once Bitten. <laughs> in Earth Girls Are Easy, that was right. really... Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. His Once pre-Living bitten. Color career <laughs> showcased his versatility. I don't know. There's, it's, it's, it's like he is like Will Ferrell, right? In that there is a part where the shtick is just like it's great. Like he's the he's the best. This uh, both Will Ferrell and I think Jim Carrey came to this realization that that shtick only lasts for so long, and then you transition into doing stuff that's drama, more more drama worthy. Because there is there you have a life, right? Well, yeah, you have, actually have a career with that. You can get a career, but then there's the bad version of having to branch out, where you just show up as the dad in a bunch of shitty comedies, like, say, Eddie Murphy or Chevy Chase. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of really bad places you can go with it. Chevy Chase is the only person who got to be the dad in a good comedy. (laughs) Because he did it early on. But, I mean... There's a lot of really shitty ones where it's usually it's like you trying to get along with your stepkid who's whoever the up and coming teen star is and they're turning your life upside down and you just gotta get you know, your proposal ready for the big promotion. And- it happened to the greatest, really, like Judge Reinhold. Oh yeah, Judge <laughs> Reinhold. Oh, I think Dudley Moore did a couple of those movies. True. But he was wasn't he playing Reinhold's son? Yes. I think <laughs> they swapped. Yes. I think both Dudley Moore and um and uh, Judge Reinhold were both in I'm Changing Places with My Son movies. Right. Yes, yes, they were. I may have changed places with those movies. <laughs> is Fred Savage in one of yes. those? Yes, yes. Is, is that the one with the, the skull? He's in age? both of them. <laughs> the other one has Kirk Cameron in it. <laughs> it's contractually obligated if you have a father-son swap movie that Fred Savage is in the movie somewhere. <laughs> has Fred Savage come back to play the dad in one of those movies yet? Because that's the oh, logical yeah. end point for that. Who would be the son that he would he'd play? Maybe Elgort Anselm or whatever his name is. That would be the Fred Savage son swap, right? Oh. That guy, that guy's ridiculous. He's good. No, but no, I like him. But him as a personality, as as a media personality, is absolutely absurd. I have not seen anything outside there's of the no, movie. There's no reason to look. It's there's that it is funny that they, that you can that you can have a persona, a real life persona, or a social media persona, I suppose, which counts as real life, as completely and totally obnoxious, and then have something like his role in Baby Driver that I think was great. I mean, that movie was that movie was not the be- the best movie that um, what's his face has ever done, but I f- I like the character. Oh, it's 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 really good. That's the thing is, I'd say it's a very good movie. It definitely makes my top ten for the year. Seeing how many movies I've seen, especially if you narrow it down to movies that just came out this year, mm. it goes even higher up the list. Um, it's not the best um, Edgar Wright movie, yeah, but that's not because it's bad. That's because the other Edgar Wright ones are just so good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Elgort, what's his name? I'm not even going to bother to look it up. <laughs> Somewhere, say- Elgort has a single tear going down his cheek. <laughs> no, he's got. A, he has enough followers that are that are uh, women under the age of twenty uh, to to make it so it doesn't in my opinion does not matter to him at all 
But I mean, that was a that was what made Baby Driver great is in a lot of ways it sort of did a musical action film that it treated action sequences the way that a musical would treat uh, a musical uh, would treat a musical sequence, and a lot of the ways in the same ways we've always kind of compared. Uh, musicals to kung fu movies where it's like mm. this is the the spectacle that you come to see but the idea of having everything linked up to the soundtrack and having it synced so well to that and making it a an experience of just the soundtrack and the action and the characters all kind of coming together see but would you say that that was i like the presentation but i don't feel that it was wholly original because i feel like guardians of the galaxy as a where they succeeded in making a, a, a mixtape, essentially, or, mm-hmm. or the movie soundtrack into something that became a personality of itself. And the rhythm and the timing and the weight of scenes were, were sort of informed and ex- exaggerated by the soundtrack. I agree with you on that, except I think that you're right about it because um, I think that Baby Driver, in a lot of ways, is an action version of Singing in the Rain. Mm. Oh, I and that, that it's that exaggerated and that choreographed. And furthermore, um, it draws from other big influences that are kind of silly. Like at the beginning when he's getting the coffee mm-hmm. and uh, you know, he's listening to R&B and he's going around and everything. It's like one long tracking shot. It's beautifully done. Yep. And everything syncs so well. Um, I don't know if you guys know um, Jay Giles' band, the singer Peter Wolf. After he left Jay Giles' band, he had a song called in the 80s called Come As You Are. And the video is, I think, three takes. And it's him hopping up and down throughout this town, interacting <laughs> in the same type of way, only in a much more exhaustive, physically exhaustive way. It's worth watching. And it's not a bad 80s pop song. But um, it's when I watch that, like, Edgar Wright clearly knows this video. And I, I think that's great that he's going to that extent. And he's so purposefully trying to make that type of a film where the music is more than a character. The music right. is the film. Yeah, it's like it plays into the plot almost. It's like it's totally part. It's of the carrying plot. the action, and I if, even if the movie had not been great, like, and this had been just like a stunt movie, like a hardcore Henry type deal, hmm. it would still be a movie that if the characters weren't great and the dialogue wasn't fun, um, then I would still really respect the movie for what it did because technically and creatively, it. It's just so impressive that nowadays yeah. in a world where you can make a movie in a computer and a lot of stuff that would have taken a ton of time to choreograph and time to throw together, you can you can do without putting people's lives at risk now. Um, it's a lot easier to do that sort of stuff, but when you have to do this sort of stuff with actors, it's kind of like the same way that I really like Birdman. And I would have liked Birdman if it didn't have that central kind of... Uh, illusion of being all in one shot. Um, but the sort of timing that has to go into creating that is the more you think about it, the more impressed by it you are. And that's how I feel about Baby Driver, where it feels like, wow. And you can see a lot of the stuff being done practically and just the love that went into that, that nobody does something that's this hard to do unless they love it. Yeah, there's just a meticulous construction of the of visual storytelling that I, I I was just thinking about this the second time I saw it when they're in it's at the end when Buddy and uh, Baby are having sort of their their final showdown in the parking garage and I was thinking I didn't I didn't get catch this through the rest of the entire movie that scene seemed so well put together and it was probably because I'm mean, get I I gather it's because they storyboarded that movie almost completely out the action sequences were were probably very meticulously storyboarded and you don't. We don't because so much movies rely on CG these days. You just do you know half of it CG, and they just do animatics to sort of fill in how things should move around. Clearly, he's a guy in the old school. If you look at any of the other Edgar Wright movies, is that he's he's so talented at being able to sort of do a visual narrative. He gets these things on paper beforehand and constructs the movie that way. And that way, it like surprised me. I was like, I don't you don't see that very much anymore. That's true. And you know what's interesting, and you, you probably do know this, is that you know when he left the Ant-Man project, he took his entire crew and made Baby Driver. Mm. And so Ant-Man probably would not have been a film that would have been heavily storyboarded, No, I would guess. But this shows the immense talent that is being used in films like Ant-Man, these big Marvel movies and things like that, and that when given different tools or different expectations, what, could, what we could be seeing all the time. Yeah. 
if you had some balls, Hollywood directors. But, but also to to know that the movie that has like the Baby Driver has the confidence to build up something and then give you something that you weren't expecting. Like the big climax of the movie is this big robbery that he wants to try to subvert. Because that's always the thing with the character of Baby is that he's not a bad guy. He just owes money to a gangster and he's surrounded by bad people all the time. And he does what he can to sort of mitigate the damage and the, the, the pain that they can cause people. And at the end, he's in the car, he's getting ready. You think you're thinking we're going, okay, we're going to get a third big chase sequence immediately gets subverted. And now we're in a foot chase. I love that, especially when a movie that's been built around crazy driving and then the foot chase is just as exciting as you subvert it. You give something somebody else, but then make it just as cool. I think there's you can see Schwarzenegger's influence on that in two ways. <laughs> <laughs> the first one is Predator. The big climax of Predator is not gunfire and heavy artillery and, and you know adding more bulk to things. It's stripping down. It's a fist fight. It's the antithesis of every other action movie climax. So it's like a, a car movie where it ends in a foot race, a foot chase. And then the second way is clearly what you're saying about baby about the character of baby is well he's kind of a young Mannheim isn't he <laughs> <laughs> a Victor Mannheim he robs from the rich gives that's, the poor that's right for our for our listeners that didn't catch on <laughs> the skate plan 2013 you do uh, definitely need the explanation because I guarantee you haven't seen that movie. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, it, that's what I really loved about that movie is that it just. Practical car stuff just isn't a thing that happens much anymore. Where car chases used to be on TV shows. I mean, you really think about how crazy that is. Um, that a lot of people don't want don't want to be at risk on a TV show. Yeah, it's just it's just now too risky to do it, and so it's much easier to do it in CGI. It's kind of crazy when you. And again, this is a TV show that I will mention every every time I get the Rockford chance. Files. The Rockford Files. <laughs> but the fact that James Garner does most of his own driving, and you can tell it's him in the car, does amazing things for the production value, where you can tell he's really driving, and it's not just the rear projection, but. That's something that I could never imagine nowadays they would ever let a star do. Well, John Wick. Well, John Wick. Yeah. Yeah, that's the sort of stuff where that's crazy, but then it's a movie directed by a stuntman who's probably a lot more willing to let somebody else be a stuntman. Yeah. And uh, that's what makes John Wick special, too, is that when you can tell somebody's really doing this stuff and they don't just become a cartoon like in an early 2000 action movie for three seconds. And then suddenly the fight stops and they're people again. <laughs> um, well, isn't it sometimes though? I think one of the major obstacles with that is that there's union, there's union rules. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, that's the reason that's the primary reason why when you see in credits, like um, driver for Mr. Reeves, you're like, what an asshole. He's got a driver to get on set. It's that it's required that they have to have a teamster drive them. Right, Cause they're, they're like, ins- the actors are insured, you know, for millions of dollars, just in case this $200 million project folds because somebody gets, you know, somebody- rolled under a wheel somewhere and dies. That's what's so crazy about, you know, and one level I'm sort of sad about, it. I'm glad we're not killing actors again. Like there's that crash <laughs> in road warrior where that motorcycle hits that barrier and that guy literally flips. And that's not a dummy. That's a dude really flying because that crash was not supposed to happen. And I think that dude broke his femur. Ah, and that's a thing they wouldn't let somebody do today. And that's just sanity. That's sanity taking hold. A lot of the crashes in the original Mad Max, I could never imagine them letting real people do anymore. Or anything Jackie Chan has ever done. Oh, God. No no shit. Jackie Chan is like the arch enemy of of the insurance industry. Right. I don't know. You you could make the case that, oh, because the movies are safer and because action movies, especially like kung fu, like fighting martial arts action movies are done so differently now than they were like in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that they're just, they're not as interesting. They're like taken, taken type stuff. But then you have like the Raid Redemption, which right. can somehow still have real stunt performers doing it. They can be, uh, they can be, it can be just as visceral and it could be just as fascinating to watch and sort of not fall prey to the quick cuts, shaky cam, have no sense of geography of what's happening on the screen. It's just that I think just so much, it's just lazy. It's just lazy. Well, it's I think, kind of like the, the way. it's kind of like, you know, Gene Kelly running up a wall. You want to see a person do a thing that wows you. You know, you don't want to go like the, again, this is the example our friend Joe Preddy brought up. It's like, there are 13 cuts of Liam Neeson going over that <laughs> fence. You know, we know he didn't really climb the fence. 
Um, <laughs> but if he did, I mean, this is the power of Jackie Chan again, is that I saw Legend of Drunken Master for the first time this year. Oh. I saw at least five things I could never in good conscience ask a human being to do. <laughs> like, he falls on hot coals, and he's probably wearing something so they don't burn him. But he's still in danger. You know his ass got burnt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That there, there are things that you could never let a person do, and I think we're so accustomed to CGI that something like the original Mad Max or any Jackie Chan movie before, like, 1999, you watch it and you, you cringe because you can tell suddenly a real person is doing something dangerous. Um, but we don't want to intentionally do this stuff just to torture actors for our amusement. We don't want to turn into, like, Jabba the Hutt here, where we're just going to, like, oh, 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 throw them in the pit. And, uh, you know, we don't want no, that. No, that's, that's football, actually. Yeah. But This is why we don't side. do that stunt anymore, where you rub that flammable gel on people and set them on fire. That's something that just isn't in movies anymore. Mm. Because mm. it makes no sense to do that. You can CGI fire somebody up. It doesn't look quite as good. But you also don't have a potential burn death on your hands. <laughs> It's you know I I don't, I don't know how to follow that up. I don't either. I I, I, I think we're against burn deaths on yeah, this show. We're definitely against burn deaths, <laughs> but we're definitely anti burn death. <laughs> but I I do think that if we can try to recapture this ability to have that visceral feeling of watching a person do something really impressive, yeah, rather than just have them go around it with a computer, I think that I have no large objections to CGI in principle, though it probably sounds like I do a lot of the time. I just don't like it being used as a crutch. I don't like it being overused because I think that when people do it poorly, it pulls you out of the movie. Yeah. That anything that makes me feel like I'm really there. And I think that a lot of that just comes from restraint. I don't think that's a very controversial opinion either. I think the idea is, is that CGI, when used well, is completely invisible. Like mm -hmm. I was watching something about the visual effects in Fincher's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And the car crash at the end of that was totally CGI. There was no, there was like a Range Rover that crashes into the side of a building or something. Totally and completely CGI. When I had seen it in the movie, I had no fucking idea. Um, however, when you see something like The Expendables, you're just, you know, you're sort of like, this looks fakey and stupid and I don't, li I don't like this. I'm not, I'm not having a good time in the movie anymore. So it's like, it's, it's really just like, do it capably. It can't, it can't be that difficult to but do it But I think capably. a lot of the organic stuff is that when you have that much control over the image, let it be a little bit blurry. You don't have to be as perfectly clear when somebody's falling off a cliff because then you know it's not real. Because nobody is going to jump off with a parachute and get that perfect... Even if you did, it wouldn't be that clear. So add a little bit of blur to things. Add a little shake to it. Make it a little inorganic. Make it a little undignified. And you can you can get around a lot of that. And sometimes when you are creating a character, I think we're just kind of getting to the point where we can escape a lot of the Uncanny Valley stuff, but it's very rare. I think the new Planet of the Apes reboots did a great job of creating a CGI character that I forgot was CGI, even though my brain knows it's CGI. Hmm. Because I think a lot of it is letting a performance bleed through it. So you're seeing a character rather than a bunch of pixels. And I think that sometimes when you... You're so big on making this look as cool as possible, you forget to make it feel like it's really happening in a world, and pretend for a minute that I'm actually filming a real thing happening, and that you don't always get perfect clarity, and sometimes those little inorganic imperfections, those little, I mean, organic imperfections, are the thing that really make it land. Don't make it look as cool as possible. Make it look about 75% as cool as possible. <laughs> And and let the other stuff go in there to disguise it a little bit. That was always the big thing with uh, Blade Runner, is that they basically have these cars that are going around on strings, but that's what rain is for. That's what lens flare is for. It's not just there for a visual thing. It's also to hide things. And those little things make you believe that you're looking at real cars in a real city rather than a big model. And I think we need to sort of re recapture that kind of uh, misdirection. Because it's all a big lie. Movies are all a big lie. But it's a, the big lie that makes you forgive and forget that you're watching a bunch of people pretending to do a thing. Here, here. 
I agree. <laughs> Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Val Verde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Dan Lombardo. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. So, Harry, I gotta, um, we're so excited about this. The, the, everyone on the show has always obsessed on the fact that we want to see Jerry Lewis's movie. Supposedly, Jerry was high on Percocet, the story goes. Percodan. 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 Yeah, this was the old days. Yeah, and, and Jerry decided somehow to make a movie where he plays a concentration camp clown. Yeah, well, you know, he had this chain of movies. First of all, I have to clarify one thing. Uh, Jerry didn't show this movie to me. I, I didn't meet Jerry uh, until years after I saw this picture. Seven. Oh, really? Yeah, no, yeah. seven and people I have... Him, I met him down in Australia this, this summer. And one of the things I had to avoid saying to him is, hey, the clown movie. Um, <laughs>